You had so many experiences that other people can can only faintly dream of what that would be like to to be like carrying the hopes and dreams of like oh like you know uh of um like an entire people <laughs> like our, our obviously it's nowhere near the scale of running for president right but for me i think as i reflect on my journey it has been a complete balancing act from beginning to end which is how do i embrace my culture but in a way you know do i want to be defined by it and and it's and that's the thing you know what i mean like i'm never i'm never going to shy away from the fact that i'm asian american but at the same time i also don't want to be just seen only as yo you know he's an asian rapper and that's why we need to pay attention to him it's a balancing act so in terms of what's going on right now you know i feel like there's a unity within the community that that i've yeah. never seen right and as far as everybody galvanizing their energies collectively to tell our stories to to have a voice so i'm excited in that you know because i i think i've always looked at my journey as my journey right like oh this is my journey i started rapping blah 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 but unbeknownst to me yo my journey has been a lot of people's journey it's our collective journey Welcome back to Yang Speaks. It's your co-host, Zach Grauman. We're glad you guys are back. We've got the one and only MC Jin, the musician, the rapper. I'll never forget, MC Jin made a Yang Gang anthem when we were running for president. And I'm not going to lie to you, we played it in the bus way more often than we should have. Um, but they talk about his career, how he started on BET. He's an amazing guy. Please welcome MC Jin to Yang Speaks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast musician, artist, actor, trailblazer, pioneer, charter member of the Yang Gang, the man responsible for some of the coolest shit <laughs> that come out of the presidential <laughs> campaign. MC Jin, Jin, welcome. 
What's up? Finally, I'm here chilling with Andrew. There's no limit to what we can do. We don't have no plans, true, but we will come through and make sure that this podcast is one of the best. Now, that's no disrespect to the rest, but I know that to be here speaking with you, I am truly blessed. Yes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So that's how the man... Uh, won 106th and Park over and over again and became this uh, um, hip-hop rising star legend, <laughs> urban legend, back in the uh, day. Uh, I'm, I've been so looking forward to this, Jin, and I associate you with some of the best times on the presidential trail uh, because anytime I saw you, it was at some rally in LA or New York, uh, you uh-huh. know, there's like a crowd of like hundreds or thousands and uh, you would go and rock it. <laughs> yeah. Great memories. You know, if nothing else for me, uh, you know, just that, that's a great way to kind of segue into, man, how I discovered you uh, and just the organic fashion of how I got to know you and how we ultimately uh, like formally cross paths. I mean, everybody's Yang Gang story is different, right? But for mine, nobody was like, hey, this is the thing, you gotta join it. Like it didn't, nobody had to hard sell it to me. I discovered it on my own. And I think a key part was um, the book, right? The War on Normal People. And I have this, you know, kind of funny, uh, just thing that I, like an inside joke that's with inside myself is that as I discovered more about you and I would cross paths with people in the Yang Gang, they would all say, um, yeah, I learned about him through the Joe Rogan podcast. Have you seen the Joe Rogan podcast? And I was like, no, I haven't seen it. And it became this ongoing thing that the more people said to me, have you seen it? I was like, no, and I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> like, I'm going to withhold. It's, it's funny, Jid, because we had the reverse joke on the trail during that time where like everyone who was coming was like, hey, Joe Rogan podcast. I kind of feel like I'm part of a special breed that, yo, I I am... Um, I, I, I hooked on to the Yang Gang without the Joe Rogan podcast, right? So shout out to everybody else that's in that same category. But nonetheless, I, I did hear that that, that podcast was a, a, a great introduction to you, your vision, you know, what, you, you know, what you're, you're trying to bring to the table and, and you know, kind of overall picture of who is this Andrew Yang guy, you know? But in terms of actually meeting you, because it's one thing when I read the book, it's one thing when I'm watching you on the news clips and, and the interviews, but I think to be at a rally, to be able to introduce you on stage, to perform, you know, you know, Drew Yang Gang, that's who I hooked up with, Drew Yang. And as soon as it clicked, I was like, yo, nobody's done this. Well, here I am. Right? And, and, and that's when I found, that's when I found my purpose in life. Are you kidding, man? I mean, you've had your purpose and I really want to get into this because you are uh, such a pioneer for so many people. And I'm just imagining being uh, an Asian American kid growing up in the 80s and 90s. In your case, uh, you were born in, in Florida, but then you all moved to New York and uh, Queens when you were a teenager. Is that right? Yeah, I moved to New York. Uh, it's about to be 20 years. No, this year is 20 years. I moved to New York when I was 19. Um, and there's an interesting tie. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, what do you call it? Like a bittersweet reason because it was directly after 9-11. So 9-11 happened and that triggered a massive change globally, right? But as it pertains to my own household, we were living in Miami at the time. I was born and raised in Miami. Shout out to all the Miami Yang gang out there, right? All the Florida Yang gang. Um, but at the time, I remember the, the discussion in our household was, 
we wanted to be closer to my um, mama and yeah, yeah. So that's grandma and grandpa on the paternal side. So they came to America, you know, they're of the 60s, 70s generation. So when they immigrated to America, it was straight to New York, straight to the heart of Chinatown, literally a hop, skip and a jump away from the world trade. So what happened was after 9-11, as my mom and dad were discussing, how do we be closer to them rather than uprooting them and bringing them to Miami? The discussion was, we go up to New York. Now, at the time, I had graduated high school. So I was like 18, turning 19, roughly. And, you know, they actually said to me, you don't have to come. You know, I mean, you're old enough now that you can decide, do you want to stay down here or do you want to go? It was a no brainer for me, though, because I've always been like a a home, like a homebody. You know, I'm very much attached to my family. Yeah. yeah. And also, I knew that if I was going to make this rap dream, come to life in any way, it would be at the Mecca. It would be in New York City, the birthplace of hip hop, you know? So you grow up in Miami. Uh, You clearly are super into hip hop from uh, an early age. Yes. Uh, And then I'd imagine because your your grandparents were in New York, you probably traveled to New York periodically and visited them. Is that right? Often, every summer, every summer um, from, from, from a young, young age, but most vividly in my mind, uh, probably from eight years old on to 13. So like those five years, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, every summer I'm in New York, I'm, I'm running around Chinatown, you know, um, at Columbus Park, uh, I'm all over like East Broadway, a lot, of, a lot of trips back and forth down East Broadway, mainly because that was the route from um, the, the apartments that my, my grandparents lived in to, to the heart of Chinatown. Um, so yeah, a lot of vivid, fond childhood memories, walking up and down Mott Street, uh, uh, Mulberry, like a lot of memories, really, really dope. So you're into music, uh, and it sounds like even as a teenager, you're like, yo, I think I want to do this like myself professionally. I have to imagine that your parents were not (laughs) thrilled with this passion in their son because you know i know a little something about asian parents (laughs) (laughs) all right so on that side of things um yes there were several several you know end of the world armageddon level type you know just (laughs) tensions within our household surrounding this particular passion of mine um i think at its peak was probably as I got older. Because when I was like 12 or 13, it was very clear that I had an affinity for this. Because here are some like key points that I remember. I remember that when I was 12 or 13, one thing that that was a, a, a crucial spark was we went to this carnival in Miami. And at the carnival, there was like a booth where you, uh, like a, a mobile recording booth. And they still have these now where you basically pay like 20 bucks or whatever. They'll put you into the recording booth They'll give you the lyrics to a particular song that you pick and then you can record it and, you know, they'll give you a a cassette recording of it. So I remember I did this and it was an A side, B side. On the A side, I did LL Cool J. Mama said, knock you out. I'm going to knock you out. And then on the B side, I did Criss Cross. Jump, jump. The Mac Daddy make you jump, jump. Uh, Some of them try to rhyme, but they can't rhyme like me, right? So the point I'm trying to make is, as a 12, 13-year-old, I don't think I could have facilitated this myself. So to some degree, my mom or dad, they had to have paid the $20, agreed to this, and let me do it. So I did that. And I guess at that point, 
they 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 didn't realize that this was the beginning of something that would alter the the rest of the course of my life. So I think the real tension didn't kick in until I was maybe like 16, 17. Because at 16, 17, I was very vocal to them about the fact that I, this is my path, you know? And uh, number one, I think, especially approaching senior year, I was very straightforward about, I, you know, I'm, I don't intend on applying to any colleges. And <laughs> no, honestly, that's, I, a tough, I, that's a tough nut to... For parents, for parents in general, but in this case, yes, I think telling your immigrant Asian parents that, you know, uh, I'm not even taking the SATs. Like if anyone even asked me, yeah, what did, what was your SAT scores, Jim? Non-existent. <laughs> I didn't take it. <laughs> you know, I love the purity of this, Jim, because, uh, uh, you know, that this is like, hey, there is no other path. Like, I'm, I'm not going to like check it out and see what that other path would look like. It's like, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> there's a, there's a beauty to it because as I got older, uh, eventually, you know, they came around and I think it was, you know, in terms of them coming around, it was a combination of just, you know, at some point they had to realize that, well, you know, it's not that we love our son any less, but it's just like, this is his calling. This is his passion, you know? And even though initially they weren't a hundred percent on board, they did arrive at a place where they accepted it. My mom came around really quick. My mom was like, okay, if this is something that he really wants to do, uh, you know, she was on board for it. My dad though, uh, his name is Joe. He definitely was like, I'm holding out as long as I can, right? And he he was not for, but the, the, the quote unquote happy ending is that as far as right now, oh my gosh, my dad is probably, He's probably more hip hop. He's more of a hip hop head than I am. Right? Like he's like, it's amazing. It's amazing. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device, you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Did you perform 
to live audiences, for example, in like your high school talent show, was there some evidence that you actually had the, the, these, um, uh, not just passions, but also like, frankly, ability? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Uh, I, I'll be the first to tell you. Like 14, you know, 14-year-old uh, Jin, you know, it was one thing to mimic and emulate the rappers that I loved, right? In this case, yeah. whether it's LL Cool J, whether it's Criss Cross, whether it's whoever, right? But to actually, you're right. What does it mean in terms of my own craft? Like, are you writing your own raps, Jin? Are you performing at the talent show? Yes. So to answer your question, <laughs> yes. So there were several talent, several talent show experiences I definitely started working on my own compositions and I will be the first to say they were garbage. <laughs> they were hot <laughs> trash. Uh, you know, but everybody starts somewhere. And, um, but I have fond memories of that too, of that process. Uh, because aside from the parents, right? So you cover the Asian parent side. But uh, another fascinating aspect to me is one reason why I loved hip hop so much because there was a camaraderie to it. So my close circle of friends, right? Like my let's say close three, four friends. That was like our clique. That was our little squad. We were all into the same things naturally. The NBA, we all love playing ball. And in this case, hip hop, right? Like we just loved hip hop. And the funny thing is these are some of my best, like BFFs, so to speak, friends that I still keep in touch with to this day. And I'm, I'm grateful for that too. You know, we're all about to be close to 40, right? But I remember vividly that even within this small circle of friends, these are my brothers, my comrades. They're like, yo, Jen, ain't nobody trying to hear you rap, yo. Nobody. <laughs> no, no, nobody they were no, like, you can do it. <laughs> no, no, no. That they, These were not those friends. Really, the big question is like, how the heck does someone break into the music industry, uh, you know, as like a 19-year-old kid, like you, you show up in Queens, like, what the heck was that process like? Because for, for me, and I remember when you did start winning these rap battles on BET. On 106 in Park, yeah. Yeah, 106 in Park. I think that was, uh, like, probably, a, a, like, a, a couple years after you arrived in New York. But that, that was when you started hitting the radar of popular culture and, and you know, like, uh, people like me. I mean, I feel like all along, I was looking for this big break. So, in Miami, I was already, like, you know, as mentioned before, probably a definitive moment was graduating high school. So, okay, yes, I don't have SAT scores to share, but I do have a graduation diploma. A pivotal moment was after graduating, I kind of already was full steam ahead. So this is in Miami. I'm, I'm doing demo tapes. Um, I'm trying to get into every single battle competition that I can. I'm trying to get into every talent showcase that I can. And I'm literally running around the streets of Miami just battling, like just freestyle battling any and everywhere at the mall, at the movie theater, at the arcade, everywhere. So I think the thing is when I made the move to New York, I was in the same mindset, but just now it's a whole new playground for me. So I'm running around Times Square battling, like just like who raps, who raps, I'll battle anywhere. Uh, in the village, there used to be a record store, iconic, called Fat Beats, the corner of 6th and 8th, where there used to be a Grace Papaya. The Grace Papaya isn't even there anymore, but there was a record store called Fat Beats, and I used to stand in front of the Fat Beats record store, both freestyle battling and basically selling mixtapes, like like uh, yeah, like mix CDs, wow, and just be like, hustle, I was that man. guy, I was yeah. that guy, I was the hey yo, you listen to hip hop, yo, check this out, check this out, man, I was that guy. So this is kind of the the year or so leading into the 106 in Park. 
to get on 106th and Park, you probably have to try out or something. <laughs> yeah, I went to uh, and and I'm super like I I have a strong vivid memory, and it's something that I, I hold dear to my heart is the fact that I went to just a traditional conventional open casting call along with the other you know 300 you know hopefuls right the other three hundred roughly 200 300 people that had the same vision as me like yo i'm gonna get on this stage and this is gonna be my big break so i think that's the thing is like i had always been looking for the big break and in this case the the 106 in park it, it was the big break you know so for, for those of um, uh, you listening who don't know what, what we're referring to there's a show on bet called 106th and park that would just have rap battles Yes, and, uh, and you'd have a champion. The champion would come back every week, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so Jin ended up setting the record for uh, how long seven. someone reigned. Seven weeks. Well, there was a, <laughs> there was one guy. I always like to. I'm I'm the guy that's always very adamant about giving proper credit to to for me. There was one guy before me that actually he he did the uh, seven. They call it the seven week run, right? And after seven weeks, there's this notion of like, all right, this guy he you know, he's already proven himself. So we're putting him in the hall of fame. So there was a guy before me, his name is poster boy. So, so I always like to acknowledge him because he, he ran so that I could fly. Right. So shout out to poster boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. So fun. So after you win seven weeks in a row, they put you in the hall of fame. I mean, that, yeah. that's pretty dope. So, so you get up there, you start winning uh, I'm going to guess that uh, of those two to 300 people, you were probably the only Asian American. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Yo, you clearly did the math. <laughs> yes, I, um, I, I will attest, unless, unless someone were to come out otherwise, because I clearly do not, I would have remembered. If I was there at that, <laughs> if I was there at, you would have noticed like the other Asian American. I would have noticed another gathering. Asian dude there. If I was... Like if I, I remember on that day of auditioning, you know, you show up and you look around and it's just a sea of rappers, you know, from Queens, from Brooklyn, from Manhattan, the Bronx, Staten Island, just everywhere. Some even from out of town, actually, because everyone's just vying for a spot on this stage to showcase themselves. Uh, but yeah, I think I would have remembered if I saw another Asian person You would have remembered, man. Because, yeah. I, I, you know... <laughs> <laughs> So you win seven weeks in a row, and then shortly thereafter, you become signed to uh, Rough Riders, which is like a major, major rap label. Um, so was that directly off of uh, 106th and Park? Yeah. So it's it. There's like a fairy tale esque aspect to all of this because Rough Riders, as it stands, was one of my childhood like dream labels to be on. Right. Like I think as a 16, 17, 18 year old, your, your dream is like, okay, how do I sign with Dr. Dre? How do I sign with, you know, the Neptunes or how do I sign with Rockefeller, Rough Riders? Like I'm from that era, right? Like you mentioned, I was born in the eighties, grew up in the nineties. So at the peak of my, you know, like hip hop journey up to that point, these were the end, the end game was to either, yo, Rockefeller, Rough Riders, who, 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 wherever the door opens. So in terms of Rough Riders, they actually reached out um, before I won seven weeks. So I think maybe a little bit past the halfway mark. After I had won three or four weeks, they already reached out 
we were already having uh, conversations and they were so committed and they believed in my, I guess my journey so much that they said, Hey, if we can close this deal out, even before you win the seven weeks, you can announce we can, it. Yes. Yes. They said, after you win it, um, they let, they kind of spoke it into existence. They're like, after you win on the seventh week, right there is when you will announce that you've signed with Rough Riders. And this is all, and I'm so grateful because this is essentially all documented and it's captured and it lives forever on film, right? So I win the battle and the host, Free and AJ, they're like, yeah, Jen, so man, congratulations. You know, how do you feel right now? And I'm like, how do I feel? Well, I've signed with Rough Riders. <laughs> and I like, and there's this iconic moment that I forgot about. And recently someone brought it back up to me uh, on Clubhouse. They were like, Jin, I'll never forget after you won the seventh week, you announced that you signed with Rough Riders and you, you, you went in your sweater and you pulled out the Rough Rider chain and you like put it in your mouth and you bit on it. And, I, and, and I'm like, damn, I don't even remember that. But apparently to this eight, eighth grader, right? He was probably in the eighth or ninth grade at the time. He was like, yo, I'll never forget that. But the beauty of this is it would be one thing if it was like an Asian kid, right? Because I, I encounter a lot of that, like Asian let's say male, male, male and females, right? That are in their thirties now. So at the time they might have been like a junior high or a high school kid. And they'll tell me the, the, the story of, man, I used to be, you know, running home on Friday to watch it just to see someone that remotely looked like me. So those tales I'm always grateful and I cherish, but this particular story about the, the, you pulled your chain out and you put it in your mouth. It was a, it was um, a, a African-American guy, right? That was like, yo, I was in the eighth grade. And for some reason, Jen, that moment has sit with has sat with me for like 20 years now, just when you pulled the chain out and you put it in your mouth and you were like, yeah, I'm rough riders now. And I'm just like, that's the power of, you know, like of, of, of cultural connection. You know what I mean? Here you have a Chinese kid on black entertainment television with a young black kid watching it, but everyone's just like, you know, just connected and there isn't you know necessarily like a feeling of like yo this doesn't make sense it, ma it made sense that it made sense to me on stage it made sense to this eighth grader as he's watching it so i don't know like i cherish that i, I cherish that yeah it's a very universal uh like a, a a universal uh like underdog story honestly it's like you know seeing, seeing yeah. this person come up and then have them be signed by one of the major uh yeah. record labels it, it's like made for hollywood stuff man i mean i i like i like uh i i remember uh frankly like hearing like hey there was this uh asian guy who won seven we like was like joined <laughs> and did this and then he got signed right i was like oh that's dope I, I i have some friends who are asian american creatives and uh, a lot of them have to at some point make a choice as to whether they're going to try to build their careers in asia or the u.s uh, yes and so in your case, after a number of years uh, performing and releasing a number of albums here in the U.S., uh, you got drawn to Asia. And I'm wondering about how that happened. It sounds like you had like one or two events out there. And then did you discover when you were out there, you were like, hey, uh, you know, <laughs> like maybe I should like spend some more time here because I'd imagine out there, uh, well, I'm not sure if you're reputation preceded you when you got there or whether like there were there were, <laughs> yeah. there were like fans uh you know uh whether there were hip-hop fans i think you're one of the figures that actually helped popularize hip-hop in asia is that right i underestimated the impact of that or maybe not underestimated but i was oblivious to it you know i mean i knew but i didn't know until 
later on. So uh, to circle back a bit, yes, a defining moment for me in terms of my overall journey leading up to right now is actually when I parted ways with Rough Riders. So I think that's a good place to start at. So literally, I signed with them in 2002, uh, coming off the 106 in Park. We we go full throttle, right? Uh, we start working on my album. My album comes out um, in 2004. So my first official debut as a rap artist uh, is this Rough Riders released album called The Rest Is History. So that came out in 2004. And I got to be honest, like even just the release of that album and everything following that, it took me some time to process the, the highs and lows of that. Uh, because I think, number one, there was just this excitement that I think nobody had ever seen before. And it did, and it did kind of surround the fact that, yo, this is the Chinese dude that was on BT. He's with Rough Riders now. And then there's this sense of like, this is something we've never seen before. So theoretically this should be gigantic, right? Something as simple as just the notion of there's like billions of Chinese people. Even if one out of every five of them buy his album, this is going <laughs> well, to be phenomenal. Five, that's like 200 yeah. million sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Exactly. So that that was both, both it, I got to be honest, it both worked for me, but against me. It worked for me because it created this sense of like, yo, this, this is going to be amazing. Not to mention he is on Rough Riders, one of the hugest labels ever, right? So I think... It worked for me in the sense of creating excitement, but it kind of worked against me because it set this expectation that, to be honest, was somewhat unrealistic, I guess, right? And, and everything I'm saying now is in hindsight. You know, I'm saying it in hindsight. But what happened was when the album released, for lack of better words, it definitely didn't hit nowhere near that mark that everyone had set for it to be deemed a success. And what does that mean? You know, the platinum plaques, the, the accolades, right? the Grammy award, the MTV award. So none of that stuff was uh, uh, attained. So in that sense, there was this feeling of like, mm, did Jin really live up to his potential, right? So I think upon me parting ways with Rough Riders, even though it was a amicable split, right? Like I literally sat down with the CEOs of the label one day and there was a mutual agreement that, hey, we gave it a go but we both feel like this might be where we part ways. So we parted ways in that fashion, but to the general public, that's not exciting enough. So to the general public, the more enticing story is, yo, did you hear that Jen got dropped from Rough Riders? So that just became the Jen got dropped from Rough Riders, Jen got dropped. Um, so then for me, I had to spend a, a, a substantial amount of time processing that. Cause of course the rapper in me, the young man in me, I was very defensive, right? So I was very like, yo, man, the industry is rigged and, you know, everything is smoke and mirrors. My, my frustration was not at Rough Riders as a label, but my frustration was with like just the system. And, and that was a defense mechanism, to be honest. So I'm just like, even through the music I was releasing at the time, it was very bitter, frustrated, anti-industry, anti-establishment. I'm like, yo, I'm, I'm a real MC. I'm a real MC, right? So in hindsight, I'm glad I had that. It was therapeutic. But underneath, man, I was broken. And underneath, like meaning there was this sense of like, man, I watched my childhood dream come true. And then I kind of watched it fall apart too. So this is, I, I preface the Asia thing with that because I think it's, it's connected. So as I'm, as I'm navigating through this heaviness, there was like a good two-year period where I'm like, 
I was this close to basically saying, this might not be it. Let me go to Home wow. Depot. Let me go to, wow. yeah, I, I don't know why I always say Home Depot because not that I, not that I specifically, maybe I have a subconscious interest in working home at Home Depot. Yeah, home improvement, like yeah. But I always, I always, when I share this story, I'm like, I was this close to going to Home Depot and seeing if I could get a job application, right? Because I'm like, yo, I mean, if this is not the path for me, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to just wallow and, and just be unproductive. I still got to go out there and, and get a job. Now, at that time, I wasn't even married yet. So I wasn't married. I didn't have a family. So the, the intensity of responsibility wasn't extremely heavy. But here comes the opportunity to go to Asia. Uh, specifically at the time, I started dabbling and rapping in Cantonese, which is, um, you know, the language we spoke at home growing up. So I'm grateful on that note too. Um, but I started dabbling, rapping in Cantonese. And then in 2008, I had a chance to go and release an album in Cantonese in Hong Kong. And then one door opened to two doors, two doors opened to four, four into eight. And I spent like a good four years there, uh, branching out into stuff beyond music. So acting, hosting, things like that. And then the, the shift to come back was actually when my first son was born, uh, Chance. Do, so we have, a, do it, we have an eight-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> we have an eight-year-old. Uh, we have an eight-year-old and a one-year-old now at this point. Congratulations, man. I've got an eight-year-old too. Um, and that, that uh, child being born definitely does change things up. So did you meet your wife while you were uh, in Asia? So my wife is an ABC, like myself, American-born Chinese. So there's a, a, a strong parallel um, in terms of our journey in that sense. Her family came here from Hong Kong. She was born in, she's a true native, uh, native New Yorker to the heart. So she was born in New York, raised in New York. She's here. She's a New Yorker to the heart. She's probably, you know, next to, next to Spike Lee, She's right there in terms of Knicks, supporting the Knicks. <laughs> you know, she's, so she's that. Uh, I met her, of all places, in Puerto Rico. So I met her in Puerto Rico, and it was uh, in, in the context of a hip-hop-related uh, music seminar. So I was there to perform, and she was there as part of the organizers. And it's funny because I remember when I showed up, um, I walk up to the, the registration counter, you know, where you get your badge and the itinerary and stuff like that. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I think our mutual kind of thought was, we're probably the only Chinese people here right? <laughs> at this, <thing. laughs> this hip hop performance. At this hip hop, yeah. But um, there, it, wasn't like, um, it wasn't like sparks flying and you know, it wasn't like that, but we ended up crossing paths again later on in New York. Uh, and then it was just like a, what do you call it? A traditional courtship. Hey, you wanna go uh, watch a movie? And uh, after the movie, it's, hey, you wanna go get something to eat, you know? So I think we watched like a movie almost like twice a week for that period. And, you know, it was dinner, movie, dinner, movie. And honestly, when I went to Asia uh, for that first uh, run to do the Cantonese album, we were not, um, we were definitely not married yet. So there were no kids, we weren't even engaged. I think it was actually after me spending like a year or two in, in Hong Kong that I was like, what are you doing, Jin? You know what I mean? Like, there she is. Oh, wow. She's right in front of you. Another you know? Hollywood thing, man. You were Another like, oh, I'm going to go back, go back and uh, go back for my girl, like and yes. eventually my wife. Yes, yes. So how was the time in Asia? I mean, it must have been an adventure. Like you, 
you know, I think you did something with like uh, Wang Lihom, who I actually kind of grew up with. Like, you know, I yes. went to summer camp together. And, and then, yeah, no, no, really, I know. It's a small world. <laughs> and then, and so for him, he like, you know, went to Asia to try and uh, make the music thing work and it worked out. Um, like, so uh, what was it like working in the industry in Asia uh, versus in the States? Yeah. So, man, Lee Holmes amazing, by the way. Super talented. And, you know, kudos to him, actually, because he was uh, one of the first people to reach out to me and specifically, you know, kind of um, to, to extend the invite to work on music together. He literally was the first. So in terms of post 106 and Park, post Rough Riders, he was the first uh, artist in that, uh, in that aspect from Asia, you know, who had a huge following and already fully established to reach out to this, you know, little rapping Chinese kid in, in New York and say, hey, I'm working on my next album and I have a song that I totally can hear you on and would love to invite you on. And it wouldn't even feel complete if you didn't jump on it. So he was very um, inviting in that regard. So shout out to him. Uh, but the experience for me, uh, for sure, was culture shock, you know, because I think um, I had been to Hong Kong several times as a kid, several times. So in the same fashion that I had a grandma and grandpa in uh, New York, I also had a grand I had grandparents in Hong Kong. So as a child, I, I would frequent, uh, you know, vacation trips to Hong Kong. So it wasn't, it wasn't like a complete fish out of water sense, but I think the context of what brought me out there was, was crucial because now I'm there as a recording artist. And now there is this notion of, uh, so this is, uh, you know, every time I would do a radio interview or a press interview, I would be introduced as, you know, straight from America, the rapping sensation, you know, and, you know, there's this, there's this pre-built perception of who I am already, uh, uh, a preconception of who I am already, which is, you know, he's born and raised in America, or as they would call us there, uh, or I, I mean, I love the title, ABCs, right? And what that means is even right off the bat, I think not all, but for the most part, there is a notion of, okay, he might not be as Chinese as us. He might not be as in touch with his culture. So when I'm doing these interviews, something as trivial as, let's say it's a food interview, right? And we're sitting at a restaurant, You'll hear the little jab that's like, hey, you need a fork? And you probably don't know how to use chopsticks. You need a fork? Let's, hey, somebody get him a fork, right? Or just things like that, you know? And um, I took it in stride. Like a, a lot of it, I don't think it was malicious. But, you know, every now and then you'll be like, yo, like, is that, you know, like, where is this, you know? And some of them were really nice about it. But I think for some cases, there was definitely like, a, I had to process it and not take it personal. You never feel more American than when you're in Asia <laughs> because oh, they're they, they, like, I'm after you. And yeah. like that same thing happened to me, you know, here in the States, you're like, well, you know, you're Asian American and whatnot. You go over there and they're like, hey, ABC, ABC. <laughs> it's like, oh my, like, All in all, though, all in all, once I was able to get past the culture shock, even for me, uh, it was great. It was amazing. Like I said, it was beyond what I expected in terms of productivity, uh, in terms of fruitfulness. And more importantly, man, just me being able to come into manhood, I would even say that, like come into a space where I'm like, I'm very clear um, on what my purpose is, on what my passion is, what my priorities are. Uh, so it was great. And, and, and honestly, even in Hong Kong specifically, is where I grew in my faith, like in, in a way that completely caught me off guard. Yeah. 
Oh, that's beautiful, man. And you come back, you become a dad, a uh, family uh-huh. man, mm-hmm. raising, the, raising the kids in New York. You know, you've branched out creatively. Uh, you're working on a, a, a bunch of different things. You were one, in one of the Fast and Furious movies. Uh, yeah. you, 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 did, uh, you did a comedy special that was uh, released online. Yeah. Um, you, and so I love the fact that you are still expanding artistically and creatively. And mm-hmm. you remain one of like the true trailblazers, certainly. Uh, for a, a lot of people, uh, what are you working on now, and uh, what what can people uh, expect to see from you? So I think it's a very special time, you know, for myself and for our community, right? And I and, and I emphasize our community. I mean, like as far as within the Asian American community, and I only say that because in terms of like trailblazing, right? You know, and I'm very humbled whenever I hear you say it because I don't know. I I I just feel like sometimes the beauty in being a trailblazer in that sense is when you're not necessarily setting out to do it. Does that make sense? Oh no, I, I, I get it, man. I mean, like I, Oh, I know you get it. I ran, I ran for president and like, it's like, you're like, well, you know, I'm very, very aware of the fact that I'm the first. (laughs) Bingo, bingo. But, but you're, but I think the driving force is you, you're balancing that combined with what just your core vision is. Right. So it's like, you, you, it is a balancing act. Because even for me, obviously, it's nowhere near the scale of running for president, right? But for me, I think as I reflect on my journey, it has been a complete balancing act from beginning to end, which is how do I embrace my culture, but in a way, you know, do I want to be defined by it? And, and, it's, and that's the thing, you know what I mean? Like, I'm never, I'm never going to shy away from the fact that I'm Asian American. But at the same time, I also don't want to be just seen only as yo, you know, he's an Asian rapper and that's why we need to pay attention to him. It's a balancing act, you know? Um, But I've learned to find peace in, you know, just internally. So in terms of what's going on right now, you know, I feel like there's a unity within the community that, that I've never seen, right? And as far as everybody galvanizing their energies collectively to tell our stories, to, to have a voice. So I'm excited in that, you know, because when I think of trailblazers, for some reason, the first person to pop into my head is Clyde Drexler. <laughs> so, uh, but I think, you know, to me is there's a beauty in, this is a real, uh, real time epiphany that I've had literally within these last few weeks. Uh, I, I think I've always looked at my journey as my journey, right? Like, oh, this is my journey. I started rapping, blah, blah, blah. But unbeknownst to me, yo, my journey has been a lot of people's journey. You know, like meaning when I encounter these, you know, 30 year olds now and they're like, no, Jin, I remember being, you know, in the seventh grade, as I mentioned earlier. So it's dawning on me more and more now that it's our collective journey. Uh, So I think I'm still in the music zone. I think music will always be at the core of me. But in terms of like the acting, I feel like I'm only slowly tapping into the acting thing. So hopefully there's more opportunities in that regard, uh, developing projects on my own as well. Um, and just pushing forward, you know, pushing forward my own journey and our collective journey, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, you've been a real leader uh, around the anti-Asian violence that's been occurring. Uh, you know, you, you um, in at least one case, helped galvanize energy around like a victim um, uh, of uh, hate crime uh, here in New York. Uh, and then you helped draw a lot of attention to helping that person. <sighs> yeah, uh, it's, been, it's been a really difficult time. Uh, but I, I have to say, Jin, like your journey is not your own. Uh, you've inspired so many people. 
And mm -hmm. I'm grateful that you and I have become friends over this time. I'm incredibly grateful to you. Uh, you've elevated uh, uh, the last couple of years for me, truly. And, and having you uh, alongside me at some of uh, these events um, uh, has made me so happy. It's like filled me with joy. You're just like a very uplifting person. Uh, and I, I, and I think, you know, this conversation actually helps, um, explain like the journey you went through. Cause like you've had so many experiences that other people can like, you know, like can only faintly dream of what that would be like to, to be like carrying like the, the mantle of, in some cases, you know, an entire, like, uh, like multi-million, uh, like the hopes and dreams of like, oh, like, you know, uh, of, um, like an entire people, <laughs> like our, our, our artistically, and then, um, you know, uh, going through the ups and downs of that, and then having to, to face down what that would be like. Um, most of us can, can, can't really imagine what that would be like. Uh, and one thing that I, I said at the last event we were at is that we need to support creators more because there's something very, very deeply personal about you're trying to create art and then put it out there. Uh, you know, we need more of it in the world. We need more folks like you uh, in doing the things that you do for sure. And, um, that it's one reason I was excited to have this conversation so people could kind of, frankly, like humanize the, the journey that Thank uh, you. you've undergone. Thank you for having me, man. I'm excited for what's to come for you. Uh, super excited, excited to be part of it. Excited to collectively just push forward, man. Definitely. Fantastic, Jen. Let's do it, man. Let's show that there's no limit. People can do anything. Anything. Just like you told your parents, like, you know, <laughs> decades ago. It's like, don't worry, mom and dad. Like, we can yeah. do this thing. <laughs> yes.